What's up, everyone? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and with me is the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Hello. And joining us from the Projection Booth Podcast, the ultimate movie podcast, Mike White. How's it going, Mike? Good. How you guys doing? Doing good. Doing so awesome. I was on uh, Mike's podcast recently. It hasn't come out yet, but we talked about the... Uh, Michael Haneke movie, The Piano Teacher, which I uh, ashamedly told him on his podcast that I'd seen four times. <laughs> so uh, definitely check out Mike's podcast. Uh, thanks for coming with us, Mike, on this journey to talk about The Shining. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right, guys. So before we start talking about The Shining, which is the movie we're going to be talking about today, a couple things I want to go over. First of all, I'm going to have another call to you guys. Please give us a review on iTunes. If everyone listening to this spent three minutes giving us a review on iTunes, it would basically change our lives. So if you guys have the three minutes, <laughs> it would be super epic if you guys left us a review. Uh, other thing I want to reveal is we uh, did another poll on uh, our Patreon, which is at wisecrackplus.com, about what our patrons want us to talk about for the next movie. And so uh, Ryan picked two films, <laughs> Austin picked two films, and I picked two films, and the results are in. So first, let me list Dude, off the, the two films. The suspension has been killing me. You mean I, the suspense? I, I really, yeah, whatever. I came to win. I, <laughs> I came to win, and I hope I won. All right. Reveal it. All right. Do you guys want it to say, okay, the two movies that I picked, I picked Akira. And I picked Batman v Superman. Okay. What movies did you pick, Ryan? I picked I picked Starship Troopers, and I picked Human Centipede first sequence. And Austin, I picked Pain and Gain and Antichrist. Okay, oh my you God. guys ready for the results? Yeah. Do you want me, you want me to go in order or from top to bo bottom? Bottom to go top from top bottom to top. top. Yeah, bottom to top. Okay. Yeah. We got the least. All right. In last place with eighteen votes is Pain and Gain. What? The, oh man, people. I like that movie. <laughs> people. Y'all don't understand. This is Michael Bay's Underrated. Stalker. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Mike, have you seen that movie? I have. That is one of the few Michael Bay's I really like. See? You know, I actually haven't seen it. Oh, dude. That's interesting to, to hear that. Okay. And uh, all right. So next one with 21 votes, the second to last place is... Austin, sorry, bro. Antichrist. Oh, no. <laughs> what the fuck, man? I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on that one. I fucking oh, man, I love made it. it. I, I love made it one third of the way through. If I got All right. the last two and we're watching Batman versus Superman, I'm going to fucking oh, jump out my pissed. window. That's all I'm saying. I'm going <laughs> Have you seen Batman v Superman yet? Yes, I've seen it. Well, I saw Oh, you have. We've gone through oh, this. Okay, all right. This movie all right. sucks. Uh, okay. All right. Next, in uh, third from last place... <laughs> Fourth, fourth from last place, right? Fourth from last place, excuse me, is with 28 votes, <gasps> Human Centipede. Boo! <laughs> Boo! What's wrong with you? Hey, man, it did better than Antichrist in Pain and Game. I guess. But, all, right. all right. Third place with 30 votes. It was ahead of its time. Is Batman v Superman. Good. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And this is actually, it's kind of a squeaker between the first and second place. Oh, second no. place. With 52 votes is Starship oh, Troopers. Fuck me, God! <laughs> that means number one with 58 votes Akira. is Akira. So, okay, well that's cool. That is cool. So last week I was sick. We were supposed to be talking Squeaker. about Gone Girl, uh, so we ended up not doing that. We actually ended up releasing a patron-only 
thing that was supposed to be for our patrons only, which was on the Star Wars Backlash. But because I got sick, we just were like, well, shit, we don't have something to upload. So we just uploaded that. So That turned out but, awesome, by the way. Oh, thank you. So for those of you who are not patrons, you got a little taste of what we usually give to our patrons. So if you're interested in more stuff like that, check out wisecrackplus.com. <laughs> anyway... All right, guys, so today we're talking about the 1980 film The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, directed by the man, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, so let's go ahead and get some first impressions. Let's start this time with Austin. Tell us about this movie, Austin. So this might be surprising. This is the first time I've actually ever seen The Shining. The fuck? Oh, my God. Wow. I know. I, I, know. I, uh, I feel like I already had seen it just by watching clips or watching documentaries about it, including Room 237, which I think is kind of awesome. Whoa, you watched Room 237 before you watched The Shining? I mean, I've read so much about What's wrong this movie with you, that I feel like I've seen it. You know, I, um, okay. there was nothing in I it guess. that surprised me. That didn't mean I still didn't enjoy it, but literally I've read so much about it and seen so many clips on it and video essays, and I've read people talking about themes in it that it was like I had seen the movie. So I, I never was, was interested because I was like, I, I get it, you know? So this was the first time I'd seen it. And uh, I, in a way, I kind of agree with everything I just said. And in a way, I'm also kind of wrong because it sort of supersedes even all of those analyses and things like that because the tension that's built and the sort of thematic resonance that's built throughout the two and a half hours is, is really lovely. And so I have thoughts, I will say, but I think it's fan-fucking-tastic. All right. Cool. Mike, what about you? Uh, I have seen this movie before, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is always great to return to. Uh, I don't know how many times I've seen it over the years. This is, uh, I, I uh, have told this story before, but this is one of the few films that ever made me viscerally sick the first time that I saw it. It wasn't, uh, I didn't throw up, but I got a really bad headache, and I think it was that high-pitched shining noise when that would come on, I would just kind of freak out. Okay, awesome. Ryan? Yeah, I've seen this movie like probably a dozen times in my life. And um, I, it's one of those few movies that I really do believe is totally different in the movie theater because I saw probably like the first five times just on, at home and I loved it. I always, every time it's an A plus, but, but, uh, but in the theater, it was such a crazy experience. It, I, I felt the tension way more, kind of that sick feeling you're talking about. I definitely was more terrorized when I watched it with a whole group of, people in a in a dark theater so that's what i would say about that movie is that is that was that watching it this time for like the dozenth time back at home i was kind of like man this movie was really way better in a movie theater even though i still love how many it. times have you seen it in a theater twice i think i at was the, there with you once at yeah. the egyptian yeah, yeah. And how awesome was that you know and, and yeah that was awesome Do you agree with me i agree with you yeah i mean i i like this movie a lot it's definitely not top tier kubrick for me um, for me it is it's one of i think it's strangely more accessible movies and it's not top tier kubrick still top tier in american well i guess he's british but we'll say western cinema or is it does it kind of fall out of the top category? he is uh he is a brooklynite he's as american as they come i don't give a shit if he moved to london <laughs> you know in his in his later years um, didn't he talk with an accent though no, no, I think really. he sounds like just a regular oh, dude. Does he? Okay, yeah. okay. A regular American dude. <laughs> yeah, a, a dude, you know. What um, about you, Jared? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. Like, part of the reason we're doing this is because uh, next month, the second episode of our new pilot show, The Film Tourist, in which I talk about like film form while inhabiting the scene of movies, is on The Shining. 
And I watched the movie so many times for that that it kind of didn't really do anything for me, this run. But like Ryan, I had this very pure memory in my mind of seeing it at the Egyptian, seeing it in a theater, seeing it at a, a great theater, and how powerful it is. This is one of the most fun movies to think about, but at the same time, I feel like maybe even a lot of this podcast is just going to be calling bullshit on a lot of stuff. Because by the way, I know we can do Room 237 for another podcast, but Ryan knows my feelings about that movie. I fucking hate that movie. I fucking love that movie. I hate it. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Room 237 is a movie that totally... It's just a documentary about the wrong subject. It shouldn't... like. What's interesting about Room 237 is that you have these people making these outlandish jumps of logic... And the question that the interesting question is, who the fuck are these people? But we never see their faces. We never see these individuals. What a bold choice. (laughs) Yeah, a a bold choice doesn't mean it's a good choice. (laughs) That was interesting. Uh, But anyway, all right, let's go into a recap. And then I can't wait to talk to you guys about, I'm curious, how much of the room 237 stuff do you guys buy? How much of it do you think is BS? What meanings do you actually walk away with from this movie? 59.4%. We'll we'll get into it. Okay. All right, guys, on to the recap. So, teacher-turned-frustrated writer Jack Torrance, along with his wife Wendy and young son Danny, arrive at the Overlook Hotel, where they will work as the hotel's caretakers for the winter. Before Jack is handed the keys, he's warned that the previous caretaker lost his mind and killed his family. Meanwhile, Danny meets the cook Halloran, who shares a specific telepathic ability with Danny called Shining. Halloran warns him about Room 237 and then leaves for the winter. Despite Halloran's warning, Danny's curiosity brings him to room 237. Meanwhile, Jack is having horrible nightmares and becomes increasingly irritable. When Danny reappears, apparently beaten, Wendy blames it on Jack. Furious at the accusation, Jack drinks for the first time in years and starts to see apparitions. Then he witnesses a disturbing image in room 237 and starts losing his sanity. Jack attends a 1920s-style party in the Gold Room where he meets Dilbert Grady, the previous caretaker who killed his family. Grady informs Jack that Danny is using his abilities to call Halloran back to the hotel and that Jack should (laughs) correct them as he did his family. Meanwhile, Danny, under the guise of his imaginary friend Tony, starts writing red rum on the walls. By the time Halloran shows up, Jack is rampaging through the halls trying to track down and kill Danny and Wendy. Jack kills Halloran and pursues Danny through the hedge maze on the outskirts of the hotel. Danny tricks Jack, then he gets lost and freezes to death overnight while Danny and Wendy escape to safety. The final image shows a track-in on a photo hanging in the halls of the Overlook Hotel of Jack enjoying the 4th of July ball in 1921. End of movie. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, guys, so there's so much to talk about here. I just want to hear off the bat just somebody say, like, what what reading do you guys, reading of this film do you adhere to? Or, like, what do you think is interesting that you've heard? Everyone's heard a million interpretations of this thing. Well, for anyone not familiar with Room 237, you know, it's basically a bunch of, which is what Jared's referencing, there's a whole bunch of conspiracy theories about Stanley Kubrick. One of them is, like, that he 
was involved in filming the the moon landing, and that there is like all these subtle hints in uh, uh, in the movie. It really is not that subtle. Danny is wearing a sweatshirt that says Apollo Eleven or okay. something like that. You <laughs> exactly. know? It's yeah. like pattern I'm... on the carpet resembles the Apollo missions logo, and then two three seven could uh, be referring to the distance between the Earth and the Moon, stuff like that. Oh, for fuck's sake! Yeah, I don't believe I don't believe in any of <laughs> do that. Do you believe that, Austin? No, no, no. Of course not. I do think that it could be possible that that there was some sort of doctoring of images. That that shit doesn't surprise me at all. Um, whether it's photographs or that things were filmed on a soundstage, that doesn't surprise me. But I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy because ultimately I don't really care. I can definitely see Stanley Kubrick literally just trolling the audience by putting that, that could Apollo be it too. thing in there. Yeah, that could be it. <laughs> Another one is about the Native Americans, um, right, and something – can you – Well, so the Native American burial ground is one of the ones. Um, another one is that the, it's a it's a commentary on American imperialism, and then another one is that it's secretly about, like, anti-Semitism. So when Jack does his the big bad wolf thing, the wolf is a, an anti-Semitic character, and so there are all these anti-Semitic themes in there as well. So those are a couple. That one I've never heard. Yeah. Let me just, let's slow down. I want I want to well, go over the from, na- I want to go over the native. That's from Room Two Three Seven. Oh really? I rem- I saw that movie at Fantastic Fest. I think Ryan was at the same uh, festival that year. And God, I don't. I just remember like rolling my eyes this whole time, and I'm like, Who the fuck are these I people? Was cracking up, man. All right. Uh, so let's let's go over the Native American genocide one, just so people are kind of following us with why people think that this is an interpretation of the film. So some people see it as a comment on America's inability to own up to its violent past. So I've heard some people say that the Overlook Hotel is like the hotel itself is a vision of silence. It's like always covering up the past. And, uh, you know, like so even the guy, what is his name, Ullman, says that it was built on an Indian burial ground. Um, Considering the visions of violence that were given from the hotel's past. Oh, he says that, yeah, like its foundations must be soaked to soaked in blood to the core like i i think that when the blood pours out of the elevator everything is drowned everything is tainted the name overlook hotel suggests that we like overlook this catastrophe of our past i don't really buy this but another thing people always back this up by saying that there's indian style designs on the wall that jack is throwing a tennis ball at uh when he's stuck in the pantry there's calame powder that has an Indian face on the can. There are Indian-style rugs everywhere. I mean, it was built on an Indian burial ground, and I think that the, at the very least the production designers realized that, okay, so there's some in Native American history here, so we're going to you know, make the hotel right. have well, that yeah, kind and it's of modeled, well, job. It's modeled after the famous hotel in, what, Yosemite, is it? The, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but so it's modeled after that. Which It's which, the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, or at least that's, that's where – that's the original hotel that Stephen King – stayed at that inspired the book uh, yeah no no, no. i don't know right. if that's the same thing that austin no no it's about. it's it's in like yosemite um i can't remember the name of the hotel i can get it in one second here actually um let's see i think there was also a hotel in california that inspired some of the look to it as well oh, hold on two seconds here and then the exteriors were based on this hotel in montana so the hotel is called the awanahi hotel in yosemite national park my parents have actually stayed there and then yeah the stanley hotel in colorado is for the exteriors but the interiors uh which this is a hotel in yosemite that actually has a lot of native american art and patterns and things like that so that doesn't surprise me if he's not trying to make some grand statement about native american genocide but he's just trying to emulate the, the hotel 
Do you think that the fact that the image at the end of the movie is the July 4th ball, you know, like the celebration of American independence, does that add to the credence of this theory at all? I mean, it, it well, could. I, I think that ultimately someone's trying to force a specificity about something that is far more likely to be just about aggression and violence within human psyche itself. Because we already know that he's mm-hmm. he's a reader of Freud and that he's interested in psychoanalysis. We talked about that in the Eyes Wide Shut episode. I mean, that's that's not something that in any way I think we would deny. I mean, he's very clear about that even in interviews that he was influenced by psychoanalysis. He read a lot of Freud. So for me, the Freudian psychoanalytic, uh, the labyrinthine themes are far more striking than these like – oh, it's a commentary on this or a commentary on that. It could be because he obviously wrote Full Metal Jacket, which is a commentary on American imperialism in a lot of ways. So it could have some of these other themes that are more, let's say, political. But I think the psychoanalytic readings are far more interesting. Yeah, my my take on all that is that you're right that Stanley Kubrick is way more into the whole psychoanalytical aspect of the of the story. But all of these symbolisms is from Stephen King because Stephen King just – that's what he does. He messes with, you know, big iconography, you know, elements in his stories and then mixes them all together. And so, yeah, he's like, OK, yeah, a guy in a Native American hotel and like he just mixed all these things up. I think that's as basically as deep as it goes with. Well, I, from what I remember, that the book is very different from the movie. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. They go way into they that way more. a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Stephen, they added a I, lot I think, more in the movie than they had in the book is what I'm saying as far as like the Indian uh, symbolism and stuff that wasn't necessarily in the book. And and Stephen, uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick, at least like he's just trying to make a scary movie, I think, at the end of the day. <laughs> you think? Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he's really not putting all that stuff. All but right. I do think he's super detailed and made. I do think he put a lot of uh, what do you call it? Like, um What's it called when something is – when you split a circle in half? Uh, symmetrical. <laughs> he put a lot of symmetrical stuff in the movie because if you remember at Fantastic Fest, they literally played The Shining over itself. Like they were, they had it one way superimposed going forward and then they had it going backwards over itself. I've heard that. For two hours. And, and it was scary how much it synced up. You know, yeah. and so there's all these people I think that go into that that you know have, kind of have OCD. I would like, like to see that again. I would yeah. like to hate watch Room Two Three Seven again. You should. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing with with Room Two Three Seven is we're not supposed to take it too seriously, and people who do take it too seriously are obviously looking for something. They're they're grasping for something. I think that it's 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 like a cultural artifact that's interesting because it muses on potential, like. I don't know, intertextual references or something like that, which I think is a fascinating yeah. thought experiment. But I'm not sure we need to invest ourselves in these conspiracy theories or these other like textual resonances. That just seems a little too, I don't know, over enthusiastic and try hard. Yeah. I mean, to me, the best thing about this movie is definitely uh, the filmmaking technique. I think that it's probably one of the, the you can see how he very deliberately constructs shots and kind of gives us this ambiguous conclusion as to what exactly is happening in the hotel but before we what get what do you think's going on in the film well i want to i want to just do one more reading okay. that i found interesting before we go into that question of what exactly is happening in the hotel so this time watching the movie i noticed something that i don't know how relevant it is i'm curious to what you guys think but they talk about there, there's this awareness of television and media and horror films in this movie so 
early on when Jack is being interviewed for the job, he says, my wife Wendy is a ghost story and horror film addict. And then later when they're driving up, uh, he Jack is reacting to the fact that Danny somehow knows what the Donner Party is. And he says, see, it's okay. He saw it on the television. Mm-hmm. There are some shots where there's the television is at the center of the frame. There's a shot where Danny is watching Roadrunner and he's like transfixed. And then I think you could make a really good argument that as Jack gets crazier, he talks more and more like a TV character. Of course, there's Wendy, I'm home. And of course, here's Johnny. Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin, then I'll huff and I'll puff. Um, And, you know, when you think about this movie, this movie came out in 1980. And I think that there was a big horror film boon that kind of led up to this. So I guess my question for you guys is, do you think that there is a... Almost, there, there is a reactionary element to this movie that the movie's kind of reacting to the popular horror cinema that preceded it. That probably even allowed this movie to get made because horror cinema was so effective and successful, and it even is today. It's true. Halloween was what, three years before this? Uh, I've actually not seen Halloween. No. I mean, I think you're right that it was riding a wave that we're not really, we haven't talked about yet. It's, it's true. And then yeah, I want to uh, say Halloween was 78. So, yeah, between that and then the quick follow ups of like Friday the 13th and those kind of things. I mean, slashers were in vogue. And this one, it's kind of is the slasher, like the way that Wendy's holding her knife and everything. But really, once we break out the axe, then it becomes that. Even though with all the shit going on in this movie, there's what? One guy that dies, Mr. Halloran dies, and then Jack. That's right. That's a good point. I think that there are some. It definitely inverts a lot of these horror tropes that those slasher movies relied on. So, for example, like the axe through the door scene. I mean, most if this were a slasher in the tradition of the films that built up to this, it would build suspense until Wendy kind of goes in the bathroom. Then she would relax until she feels safe and the audience feels safe. And then suddenly, without warning, the axe would come crashing through the door and the audience would jump like a jump scare. That's what happens in slasher films. But with this one, we know where Jack is. We know that he's approaching the door. We know he's about to, you know, so instead of having us be scared with Wendy, I mean, we are scared with Wendy, but for different reasons. Like it definitely, instead of having Jack be like Jason or Freddy Krueger, who are these mysterious characters that were never with their perspective, he definitely tries something a bit more radical and shows us from the beginning, we are with the perspective of the person who becomes the monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this film, remember how I was a little bit turned off by Hereditary's turn at the end of the film? Because I thought it, it it sort of rationalized what was otherwise, I thought, a nice mystery and tension-building exploration of, you know, psychological depths and uh, trauma and things like that within the human the human experience this film doesn't do that and so that's why this film is far more interesting because one it's not like oh here's a monster that's coming to get you like the slasher films are and then it's also not here's some sort of spiritual occultish thing that rationalizes everything you're still left at the end kind of like what the fuck is going even there's all there's all that talk about the shining and there are these people that are able to tap into the future and the past and that the building itself that the hotel itself sort of has this shining resonant possibility as well all of that is still very unexplained and i really like that because i like confusion yeah I think the scariest monsters are the ones that we know, the monster you know, and so much of this movie is about family and family relationships, and that the father, that Jack is the monster, that 
Charles slash Delbert Grady is a monster. I mean, this so much of this is about just those horrible moments of family and the tension that happens and that we have this history of abuse from Jack to Danny and then the way that Jack treats Wendy. I mean, those are the scenes that make your skin crawl. Like when she comes in and he just lays into her verbally abusing her, that's like almost as bad as a knife point. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. the real monsters are projections of the worst parts of humanity, right? Or the things that humans are scared of or the things that humans are trying to reconcile with. And this film is all about the monster that's inside of you, the monster that's inside your brain. And so that's why even though Room 237 has those weird conspiracy ones, the one that I find the most interesting is probably the one where they say that it's about the Minotaur. Because the idea of the labyrinth and the maze and the Minotaur seems to be something that Kubrick was very intentionally employing as a motif. I mean, I yeah, the, but but the, the Minotaur design, thing, like, sorry, the, the, I mean, there's a maze, but as far as it being <laughs> like Minotaur Theseus, like, I just don't buy it. Like, yes, there is a maze. I think you could make a good argument that it's the maze-like structure of the brain. But I, I just the, I remember this part in two three seven. I think this is where I lost my shit. Where they're like focusing on this poster that is very clearly a poster showing a guy skiing and they're like oh but if you look at That's it the, the shadow makes it look like yeah. a minotaur no, I, I was like, like that part. i wanted to get up and fucking leave yeah 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 <laughs> no that's i mean they're obviously forcing so let's say that again even when we watch room 237 we don't take them literally maybe they want to be taken literally but at least what they're noticing is this theme of the minotaur which i think is fascinating because even if a boring representation of the Minotaur story would be a literal, here's a story of a Minotaur and Theseus who goes in and it's Ariadne and all of these characters. That's the boring, okay, great, we get it, representational art, blah, 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 blah. This is 2018, let's be interesting. Or if I, this is 1980, let's be interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, even still, right? Even still, like representational art has existed for centuries, so we don't need to reproduce something that's a few millennia old. So the interesting way to look at it is just to take a motif and to insert it into this larger set of thematics where it's about human psychology, it's about family, it's about trauma, it's about male fragility and resentment because uh, his wife is just this sperm bank that's not given him the satisfaction that he desires, which is why he has that weird uh, interaction with the woman in 237 at that one point, right? Um, and so there it's are all about these... people in bear costumes blowing guys. It, it... Yeah, he the look on his face when he sees that woman in 237, like, you know, there's not even a seconds of thought of like, oh, you know, but maybe I shouldn't cheat on my wife. Like, no. he's just like in it. Like, he's just like, I'm ready to submit myself to fantasy. Absolutely. And so I think when you look at the idea of Theseus and Minotaur as being maybe Danny and Jack uh, at the end, that we don't need to... to, to to expect that it would be such a literal rendition, but that it has these nice thematic motifs that are a part of it. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. So just to, to, to cap off my my rant on Room 237, <laughs> I would say that the movie would be more interesting if these people said, one could interpret this as a Minotaur, but they don't say that. They say, it's a Minotaur. And then I asked myself, who the fuck is this guy saying this? Like, it's like some sort of authoritative statement. 
And then I don't get the answer to that question, and I'm like, this this but, documentary but, but, is not asking the, the right But the structure question. of the movie, though, is literally you just hear a new guy's voice yeah. every 10 minutes, right. you know, a new theory. Didn't you just get the idea, like, okay, this is this guy's opinion? So it's it, I didn't get the authoritative aspect of the movie, because they don't structure it like that. It's not like a History Channel documentary on The Shining. How is you it know? not? Like, it's, it, it's not, because it's just literally just like... Here's room 237, and then here's one crazy person talking about a crazy theory, and then another. But that whole crazy, and, you're projecting that. I like, am projecting it, there, but I think if, Austin If there was an earlier, authoritative voice that, like, you know, like that painted these people as crazy, then at least there would be a, a sense of perspective. But they, don't, they did they that don't on purpose, though. They did it. They said, we're going to let the audience come up with whatever <laughs> they can come up with. And you obviously are like, fuck these people. They're bullshitting us. And I'm like, man, I, I want to know what these people are like, too, but I'm glad that I only all got I, their five-minute right, take I, on I, the show. All right, all right. I want to move on, but the last thing I'll say is all I wanted was to see these people's faces. I wanted to see who they are, <laughs> what their day it's jobs cooler are. It's cool that you don't. Yeah. So you can I, judge cool. them because only get they're the dressed theory. weird, Jared? Is that what it is? Is, exactly. And delegitimate Maybe. them based on the funky hat that the guy is wearing. Exactly. I don't need to see them to delegitimize them. What they're saying is absurd. <laughs> and so that's that, what's that, cool. That, you're, that basing it, you're basing it solely on what they said. Right. But if they were wearing right. a suit and they said, uh, my name is Dr. So-and-so from the psychology department and film no, department. No, absolutely. No? Then I would... No. Then I would be scared to death for our universities. <laughs> <laughs> they're all 13-year-old kids. All right, so now let's just open the question. What Do you guys have any definitive ideas or thoughts as to what is going on in the hotel? I already We already heard what Austin said. Mike? Oh, man, put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I, you guys were talking about the idea of the, uh, the half a circle before, and I love the idea of all the doubling of stuff that's going on in here. The idea of uh, Danny having Tony, his imaginary friend, and then Jack having is it Delbert at this point, Grady as his imaginary friend and just the way that we uh, have these mirrors and so much of this movie and the original ending of this movie was kind of that cycle of violence that I was talking about earlier with abuse and that the tennis ball that Jack has is, you know, rolling towards Danny in the hallway. And then at the very end of the film, we see him bouncing the ball against a wall, just like his father was. Now that's, you know, obviously cut out, but then we also talk about cycles as well, as far as you've always been the caretaker, you know, this mm. is, you know, maybe mm. Delbert Grady is a different person than Charles Grady. You know, maybe there's a, uh, like an imaginary version of him. And this is, you know, this whole idea of all of these things have happened before and they will continue happening until the end of time. So that's why every night in the gold room, we're going to have this party going on mm. and it's just going to repeat itself. So, I mean, there's those kind of things are what I enjoy about this movie is that it opens up so many different avenues that you can pursue and say, oh, look at this. You know, there's doublings of the maze outside and then the maze of the actual overlook itself. There's doublings of, you know, this design versus this design. So it's really nice to take those pieces and try to fit them together. And this is such a nice puzzle that you can put it together in different orientations. It's not always, you know, put in, in most puzzles, you can only fit the pieces one way in this, they interlock in many different ways. Cool. Ryan. I mean, I mean, like, you know, do you, when you you've seen the movie a bunch of times, yeah. if somebody asks you like, hey, man, what is The Shining about? Or like, you know, what happens? Like, explain the movie to me. What would you say? Well, I mean, to me, the I guess if I was going to what does the hotel represent? It's isolation is kind of the best word, I'd say. 
a guy, it, it, like the whole movie is about, you know, it's it's a fucking big ass mansion. It'd be a different choice if he ha- it was just in a little shack, you know, right? It wouldn't be, I don't know. Yeah, if it was the Bates Motel, <laughs> it'd be my, a lot different than the That's all I got, Motel. really. Yeah. Movies about isolation. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I going think crazy. I, I think that I think that I, I think those are both really interesting ways of looking at it, and I don't I don't disagree with either of them. I actually think they get enfolded into the way that I think the most interesting way to read it is. But I think it's a it's a film about the commentary on the human psyche. I know I said this before, but I think that in a way you could say that the hotel is sort of um, a visual representation or visual metaphor for human. The, the human psyche itself. And so this idea of repetition, like Mike was just talking about, is the idea of the repetitions of the violence and the traumas that are embedded within the human psyche and that it's related to murder and death, which is very Freudian, this idea of the, the killing of the primal father, which you obviously have these tensions with the father and the son and um, and the kind of denial of death and red rum and these like seas of, of blood that are kind of flowing. And so I think that that death and murder and trauma are essential at this hotel. And then, of course, you see all the skeletons and the cobwebs. So there's all these themes that seem to imply long periods of time, death, uh, kind of uh, traumatic elements, skeletons in the closet. And I think that, that those are really kind of quite striking to me. And I think that, that, that that's why I say the most interesting way to read the film is through the lens of like a Freudian psychoanalytic reading about the human unconscious itself and that Jack and Danny and Wendy are just sort of, you know, they're just, um, they're just singularities that repeat within this same cycle of violence. One of the things that I really enjoy about the movie is just looking at, you know, we were talking about perspectives before and the, the use of the Steadicam in this movie is so fantastic yes. that it gives you this free floating perspective and sometimes it feels like it's the hotel itself. Other times it feels like you're looking through a character's POV. Mm. There's one point, I think, when he's going into the room to see the beautiful woman slash hag. Again, another nice doubling. And he opens up the door and you see his hand push it open. So it's very much like Jack's POV mm. and the way that she's framed in there, almost like a proscenium. And then he walks into it. So it, it can't be his POV or it, maybe it's his POV for a little bit. But then the camera stays outside and he moves into it from the left-hand side. So it really throws you off as far as, I thought this was a POV shot. Now suddenly it's an impassive camera maybe shot. Maybe it's our so, POV, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. No, I think what Mike is touching on is is exactly what I was going to go into. Actually, this is the subject of our uh, our film tourist episode that's coming out next month. is all about how Kubrick plays with perspective to basically, and I would say maybe this is a cop out. I mean, I'd say he basically is just fucking with us. That's that's yeah. That's my whole theory on the movie too. He he's is just an yeah. OCD person who is playing with other OCD people. Well, it's like he does that bit with the with the mirror shot with when Jack is sleeping the first time that he wakes up in the hotel. And you think that the shot is on him, but as it pulls out, it starts to turn out that that's actually just his reflection. And then the whole scene plays out in the reflection, Um, except for Wendy when she first walks in. She walks in in the shot, and then she goes into the reflection. And so that that kind of reverses the angle, and it kind of – it's jarring. It's sort of like, you know, when when – directors fuck with the 180 degree rule right it's it's doing something like that where it jars the audience so you're like wait a second what am i looking at how many mirrors are in this movie i mean it's crazy how many mirrors and then even when he first sees lloyd and he's looking at 
himself basically and then we get that head-on shot from him and he puts his hands mm. over his eyes and then he pulls it down and then he starts to talk to us but then it's actually now again mm. lloyd's pov so it's like whoa just he is really pulling the rug out from under you yeah so i was going to talk about that shot so we see we think we're seeing lloyd from his perspective and so the conclusion that we could draw from that is, okay, if we're seeing this from Jack's perspective, then we can assume that this is all some sort of subjective delusion and that he's losing his mind. But just when we're about to think that, the shot, the camera goes back and it reveals Jack Torrance's like shoulder. It becomes a close-up to a over-the-shoulder shot as if to give it more objectivity. It fucks with you. It says like, oh, you think this is subjective? Nope. It's objective, like it's really happening. And this happens constantly. And the the, the steady cam thing that Mike brought up, uh, and this was the first use of the steady cam, right? No, it, was it had cre- been used before. He didn't pass it the was- glory too, right? Through the barracks? Yeah. Yeah, that was through with Dolly's, but he, uh, Steadicam, Garrett Brown had done stuff with, uh, what was it, uh, Bound for Glory, uh, the one about, um, uh, with David Carradine. Woody Guthrie. Yeah, Woody Guthrie, and then also the, obviously, the famous step sequence in Rocky, and then also a lot of work on Exorcist 2, and kind of also the pulling hmm. the uh, POV of the demon Pazuzu in that film. Hmm. Interesting. Awesome. See, you got to check out this guy's podcast. He knows his shit. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, I, I have one of those weird shots for yeah. you. Or uh, uh, Who lets him out of the freezer? Exactly. This is when it's not even just like perspective, but the the, the physical laws are thrown out the window yeah. because like, okay, if Grady is an apparition, how can he affect physical reality? Exactly. And somehow he's let out of the freezer. And what's your answer to that, Jared? Show me the meaning. It's well, a joke. It, it's not <laughs> a joke. It's 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 Kubrick just fucking with yeah. us. You know, All like right. the idea the, the, the idea that there is like it, it, yeah, he's scaring us by thwarting our efforts to impose meaning or some sort of concrete logic to the film or the hotel. It's a big troll. It's a big troll. He's a, a fucking troll. He's a Minotaur troll. I have a room 237 level reading of that, which is that we've got, uh, it's almost like a, a monkey's paw where you get the three wishes. He he says he sells his soul for a drink. He gets a drink. He is talking about the old sperm bag, up, sperm bag upstairs. He ends up getting that beautiful woman who ends up being a hag. And then he's trapped in the freezer and he ends up getting out. So we've got the three wishes, which none of them really work out in anybody's favor. Holy shit! Let's make two thirty set room two thirty seven two. So I mean, it could be it could be, the be first two. No, I, I it think... could be two that Danny let him out, right? True. Um, it could be like yeah. like what happened to Danny's neck earlier. We don't really That's know, true. right? Maybe Jack really did do that to him, and so there's this idea that somehow they're conspiring against one another because they sort of need each other in this traumatic struggle of trauma and violence that gets repeated within the human psyche. And so all of these these needs for, like, did this objectively happen or was this subjective are sort of collapsed into the idea that everything is a psychological subjective objectivity. So it's both. It's subjective and objective because it's subjectively in the psyche, if that makes sense. Yeah, the way that they set up that uh, that whole thing with him, uh, Jack, and Danny, and he's like, oh, I want to stay here forever and forever, <laughs> and so like doubling the, the, the words of the twins, oh, or the even though they're not supposed to be twins, um, and then that goes into Danny going into the room, so we never really see the assault, but then it's weird that it cuts before he actually can get into room 237, 
and see like because again it's like mirrors galore inside of that room and then like cut now to him wandering into the room so it's almost like that entry into room 237 is the fantasy while he's being you know choked by jack i mean that's one way to read Mm. it yeah so i wanted to go back to what mike just said about uh, the monkey's paw and i was kind of interpreting some of the things going on as uh, kind of like a once again, Kubrick fucking with us by kind of hinting at like a Faustian kind of thing. So he says, I'd sell my soul for a goddamn beer, and then Lloyd immediately shows up. So we're meant to believe. And then later, when he's freaking out at Wendy, he says, when she says they should leave, but he says, I signed a contract similar to yes, Good Faust one. signing a contract uh, with the devil in blood. And then maybe this one, Jack says, I'm the kind of man who likes to know who's buying his drinks, Lloyd. Mm. And Lloyd's like, that doesn't concern you. Is he... Is it the devil, a demon? I don't know. Once again, these are just more things that I think Kubrick is just like, maybe it's the devil, maybe it's not. Ultimately, it doesn't make sense. Well, and, really, and it's Stephen King, too, remember? Because he it's it's Kubrick playing with Stephen King's... Kind cut. of. And I, I think mean, Stephen but because, King does the same thing. Things... He trolls people, too. End up with, with I haven't read the book, but I will say that the things that Kubrick is accomplishing here and thwarting our perspective or our ability to make sense of this is largely done formally through the medium of film, like in ways yeah. that ways that Stephen King couldn't do through text. And he hated the movie too. Yeah, I'm. Sh- I wonder how what he thinks about it now. He doesn't like it. He still doesn't like oh, it. Oh, he yeah. still hates it. Yeah, he thought that okay. the TV version was like the definitive version. I tried watching that. Oh, that it's a rough watch. Yeah. One of the things that he hated about the original was the idea of Jack Nicholson playing Jack Torrance. And he's just like, well, he starts crazy and there's no place to go from there. You know, like because I think because Nicholson now had baggage from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and some of those earlier roles that King just couldn't buy him in that place. And plus, you know, I mean, it's basically supposed to be a stand in for Stephen King. Right. And kind of like a wish fulfillment version of him with the hot blonde and all this kind of stuff. So I think that was an affront to him, the casting of Nicholson and the casting of Shelley Duvall. Yeah, I I was thinking I'd heard that I was thinking about this last night. and, And as much as I love Jack Nicholson and as incredible as he is in this movie, I was thinking it would be such a different experience if it was a guy who was just who seems like more of your average Joe and then by the end becomes more Jack Nicholson manic. But I mean, I guess you're right. Whenever I think of Jack Nicholson, I think of the Joker, Easy Rider, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's always a little bit on the crazy side. So do you, you think, want a Jason Bateman? Do you think then that the Stephen King novel is more about what Ryan was saying, that it's more about isolation and the the pitfalls of being a writer who needs to sit there and you get lost in your own imagination and kind of the descent into madness that takes place. Is that, do you think, more in the novel than maybe in the film? And that's why King didn't like it? I haven't read I the novel. I also think that alcohol plays more of a, a a part in the novel than it does in the film. I mean, yeah, there's a whole thing of him not drinking and that does play kind of a theme in the movie, but it's nowhere near... Like, we don't necessarily say the demon is alcohol. You know, we think about the overlook and the overlook is the demon, but if we can kind of break it, break through that and say, no, the real demon is alcohol, but I don't think we would ever get there with this film. I don't think we would ever say, no, the true bad guy of this is that he's taking a drink. Oh, but Stephen King was trying to focus on that more in the book. Well, that was again, a personal thing for him because he was uh, quite a drinker uh, for a time. And then, 
Eventually, he would get hooked on pain pills after he got hit by a car. So he's always had substance abuse problems. I mean, here's so the I thing. I don't want to sound was... like a dick, but that's just far more boring than what Kubrick put together here. I, to, yeah. Again, to, yeah, try, no. to try to be like, here's the problem. This is the demon. That, that, that to me, again, is, is my problem with Hereditary. It's, it's too literal, man. Like, this is fucking art. Let's have some poetic openness here. And I think that... Yeah, yeah, answers are for posers, man. <laughs> questions is where it's at. Questions, bro. Questions. <laughs> That's man, why I'm a brother. Um, so I want to talk about Jack. Uh, this time when I watched it, I really kind of focused on, and there are some really amazing things about Jack Nicholson's performance. One of the things is um, there is, I, 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 what I really appreciated this time is how the hotel kind of gives in to, it, it not only represents his frustrations, but also represents and ultimately kind of gives him a little bit of his fantasy. So um, there are a couple times in the beginning. So first of all, we hear, uh, actually this is later in the movie, he says that he works at a car wash and shovels driveways and how Wendy fucked up his life. I really like this moment. Did this guys? Did this strike you guys? So the apartment that they're given, they keep on using these like kind of passive aggressive language, like looking at it like it's cozy and homey. Like, are they like, do they feel like, oh man, like this big hotel and you're giving us this shit room? Like, is, is there any indication of that? Did you guys get that at all? I remember the moments you're talking about, but yeah, I didn't get that from that. There's also, um, when Jack is getting the tour, the tour guide tells him that all the people that stay at the hotel are all the best people. Um, and then when he's there at the party scene, in like the 1920s like he's around these like what i would imagine are like these 1920s aristocrats and he's so performative when he's talking to lloyd he's having this great time he's usually dancing through the hallways as if he believes this is where i belong yeah there's among... a lovely class element in this film that i i would love to yeah. do like a just a singular marxist reading of this film because it clearly is playing with the idea of the working class versus the like bourgeois right and maybe the idea of the hominess of the room is feeding into that resentment that Jack already right. elicits with he can't really hold down a job. He's kind of out of work. He used to teach just to make ends meet, but he wasn't proud of it. He didn't love it. It wasn't like a passion. It was something that he did just to get by, but really he's a struggling writer, and so he doesn't have the thing that he wants. He doesn't have the fulfillment of his desire, so he's not content. So there is an interesting class element that Kubrick is exploring here too. Um. And going back to a second ago, you, you talking you praising Jack Nicholson's performance. If you uh, uh, there's some funny insight into that. If you watch uh, Stanley Kubrick's daughter's uh, uh, like short documentary about the making of The Shining, called The Making of The Shining, I think uh, everyone should go watch it. And you see Jack Nicholson in the back because this was like a crazy over uh, delayed shoot that went on and on and on, and they kind of were like you know art became reality because they were kind of all going crazy in the hotel. <laughs> and you see Jack Nicholson just sitting there like being like. I get a new script every day, and it just I get to the set, and it's a different script. So I just throw the things away in the morning. I just don't even get, read them anymore, you know. And he's just sitting there, and then he's just like pumping himself up with an axe. Like you can tell, he's just kind of like, I guess we're making some weird, scary movie, and I'm gonna go act crazy. And then Stanley Kubrick edited it together into this weird masterpiece. Well, I heard so. something that I think is in that documentary, Ryan. You can tell me that the the little boy, Danny. I don't remember what the actor's name is, but it's Danny something Danny Lloyd Danny Lloyd that he didn't know that he was in a horror film that he thought he was just in like a oh, hotel family drama which when I watched the film I'm like but he's holding a knife and he's getting scared by these ghosts how did he get that performance out of him if it wasn't a horror film but what is that covered at all 
I don't believe so. I mean, he's in the he's in the that thing. Seems but like more really IMDb trivia. No, yeah. I've seen Danny Lloyd in person, and that's exactly what he had to say. Right. Oh, that's amazing. Whoa, cool. Well, there we <laughs> go. How the fuck? How? Shit, man. Like, what the fuck, man? Because the performance is so young. That kid's awesome. I was just going to say, we should take a moment to give a hand for Shelly Duvall in this movie. I mean, shit. Yeah. Wow. Dude, I have a Good question. Job, Shelley. Shelley. I was watching this, and I was thinking to myself, is there something important that Danny, the actor's character's name is Danny, that Jack, the actor's name is Jack, but that Shelly, the actor's name is not Shelly. Is there something important about that that is supposed to focus our huh. attention on her character as Winifred or as Wendy? Room 2372. I don't know. I mean, is the names in the book, are they consistent? Oh. I, I don't know. I, don't I know. think they are. I think they yeah, are. Yeah, then I probably wouldn't think too much into it. Oh, well. Anyway. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And plus, they... Halloran asks her two other names. He's like, "Are you a Winnie? Or are you a, like, like I can't remember what the Freddy. other one yeah. is?" And then she says, "No, no, I'm a I'm a Wendy." It's like, "Oh, okay." I think that could probably speak to more what Austin was talking about earlier with like you know her just being the whatever like his cum bucket or whatever. What is the word? He's sperm, sperm bank. receptacle. The old sperm is, bank. Sperm bank. Yeah. My bad. <laughs> cum bucket. Yeah. I mean, there, there, what is the difference? There, well, there is something really interesting. What is the difference? Like again. Because there are all these different readings. Like so, like uh, a class analysis reading would be interesting. A feminist reading would be interesting. A psychoanalytic reading. A mythical reading. I mean, there are all these different ways to look at this film. And I think this is what's so interesting about him as a filmmaker. He's able to encapsulate all of these motifs into a story that's also gripping. Where I think so many people they try to be conceptual. And they lose out on interesting narrative or interesting story. And he's able to consistently do that. He's able to bridge that. And can you just a... imagine him reading all those meanings and just cracking his up, cracking right. up? Yeah, <laughs> I get. Yeah, he probably. <laughs> just... Look what these people think this movie's about. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a really nice uh, YouTube video out there. The guy was not in room two thirty seven. His name's Rob Ager, I think it is, and he does this whole reading about the gold room and how America was switching over from the gold standard at that time. Uh. So when Lloyd says, your money's not good here anymore, it's like, or uh. your money's no good here, it's like, well, because that's like post-gold standard. And it was actually really interesting. Uh. And plus, like, they talked about, like, the best people were here. And then he tries to figure out who some of those people are in the photo at the end. And he was like, well, this person looks like it was Woodrow Wilson's sister. And this is like, you know, wow. Teddy Roosevelt's niece or whatever. And it's just like... Okay, yeah, it gets real deep real quick, but he actually makes some good points. Interesting. See, this is what Room 237 should have answered but didn't, and it's why are people drawn to this film in particular and try and project meaning onto yeah, it? Yeah, why do you think so? Well, I mean, I used to Kubrick's films, I think The Shining is probably this, or maybe like 2001 are the ones that people talk about the most. Not that they like the most necessarily. Dude, on, on, on YouTube, people are crazy about The Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, oh, conspiracies. Yeah. The Illuminati thing. The Illuminati yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to hate Room 237 until I talked to the filmmaker and I was just like, I didn't say like, why did you leave all the stupid stuff, like the kid coming in and interrupting the guy, but I was just like, you know, kind of talked to that point. And it was like, well, you know, this, The Shining's really about family and I wanted to make sure that we got the families in there and stuff. And I was like, after talking to, what is it, Rodney Asher, I think, made the film, I was just like, okay, I respect this film a little bit more. To me, it's more of a, a movie about people who need better things to do. But yeah, yes. there's like a need <laughs> to 
look for deeper meaning because there's a lot of shit where they're just like, oh yeah, and if you look here, it looks like a like he's got a big hard on and blah blah blah. And I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about? Like that's a desk. What are you saying that because the guy moves around the desk, he's got a big hard on for Jack? I'm like, that's that's bizarre. Yeah, Ryan, it would be like watching the King of Kong, but it only being Donkey Kong footage. No, it is not. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes it is. Not. All right, all right. Let's move on to the mailbag. So we got uh, some emails regarding Star Wars. So if you guys haven't heard our rant on the Star Wars backlash, uh, I don't think it's up on our uh, Wise Cast channel yet, It's, uh, but it is on the RSS feed, so definitely go check that out. All right. So this one is from Justin. He says, while listening to the last episode of Show Me the Meaning, I got a little irked by the discussion of Admiral Holdo. This isn't really on you guys, but a lot of people complain about how she made a mistake by not telling Poe the plan. But this smells like utter bullshit. She doesn't tell him the plan because not only does he not need to know and is on a far lower link in the chain of command, but also because it's a little bit, fuck you, flyboy. She is the admiral and he needs to follow orders. The only reason the plan fails is because Poe sends Rose and Finn who get betrayed by JD. The character Holdo is a little thin, but a strong one. If Michael Ironside or Clancy Brown played Holdo, I don't think we'd be hearing all this hate. How dare that shrill, bossy woman do her job? So uh, I, I get this, like, and that's, and, and I'm I'm glad that he wrote this in um, because I think that that is how we're supposed to read it. That that Holdo, you know, like, yeah, like we're supposed to say if he had just followed orders, then everything would be okay. What do you guys think? I mean, because because I, I disagree. I mean, uh, I, I well, no, I, I agree that that we're supposed to take it that way. But yeah. I think that the logic of the plan is so poorly, like, drawn out to the audience or portrayed to the audience that it seems like bad leadership, no matter right. her gender. You know, like it just right. seems like, wait, what? Why'd you have to keep that from everybody? You know, and, it, and, and shouldn't it, she know that like there may be like dissent breeding among her ranks right. like you can't just ignore that and just say well it ought to be this way yeah exactly so i get their point but i disagree i think that it was a poorly laid out plan uh austin anything on that i don't care no <laughs> i really don't i mean our, I, it wasn't our point <laughs> our point so wasn't so much the that she was a bad leader or something like that that she all she had to do was just kind of explain to Poe yo dude get in line I got this secret bigger master stroke the biggest issue with Holdo was uh, was what kind of what what the writer who was the that wrote the email uh this is from Justin that Justin said uh about you know that oh if this were you know a dude in this role then we would have just kind of like taken it so seriously how dare how dare this like strong woman but wasn't that kind of the point is that is that the backlash against the film was kind of um, in that sort of like supposedly anti-woman sentiment and that the backlash to the backlash was, wait a second, how dare you not just trust women? So then it's like the I trust woman thing. So isn't that more what we concentrated on than about like the foolishness of the plan? I, I don't know. I don't know either. Anyway, moving on. Um, so this next one is from Matt. He said, one big question I had about your discussion. You argue that Ryan Johnson is more of an art house director in the fashion of Paul Thomas Anderson. If that's true, do you think, putting aside questions of Star Wars canon and diversity, that The Last Jedi works as a film? My opinion is that it does not. The pacing is boring, the tone is all over the place, and some of the promising characters from The Force Awakens are left in boring, pointless side plots. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to clarify here. I don't think that Ryan Johnson is an art house director. I guess what I mean by that is... Yeah, he's more concerned with making 
a piece of art that cinematic director. Yeah, some, yeah, something more cinematic than something that uh, you know has a deep, compelling world with uh, lore and plot and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think that he's bringing something up. Like, if he were able, if he achieved that, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. It's a totally different thing. It's like this is what he was going for, or this is how he fancies himself, and this is what he's actually able to achieve. And I would agree. I think that. If the movie worked on the cinematic level that it was aspiring to, then, yeah, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. Agreed. Um, all right. Well, that's it from us today. If you guys want to chime in with any discussion, you want to give us some thoughts on The Shining, hit us up at movies at wisecrack.com. I want to give a shout out to Mike White. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Thank you so much, guys, for letting me be part of this discussion. I appreciate it. Yeah. Where can, where can people find you? Tell us about your podcast. I'm over at uh, projection-boot.com, and yeah, every week we put out a new episode, or sometimes two, which is really stupid, but mm. that's what I do. <laughs> so, and and uh, tell doing us it for about seven years. So I mentioned this earlier, but I'm on his podcast on the Piano Teacher, which is an extremely deranged Michael Haneke film. <laughs> um, and when is that coming out, Mike? Uh, that should drop August third. August third. I'll be looking Sweet. forward to that. Uh, and where can we find everyone else on the internet, Brian? Um, Ryan's Game Show and Ryan's Shorts on YouTube and Facebook. I'm coming out with a movie, I mean a short on Ryan's Soda Reviews, and then also a life hack on how to fly. Cool, and Austin? Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn, and then I also actually do another movie podcast that I never talk about because I'm terrible with promoting myself, but it's called I Dig This Movie and it's with a buddy of mine who's an award-winning director in London named Keir Seward, and he's got like an encyclopedic knowledge of film, and I'm just the douchey philosopher. So we talk about movies that we love. Cool, cool. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at Wisecrack. Hit me up on Instagram at Father of Woody for the best dog pics in the biz. Uh, also want to just remind you guys, uh, if you want to take place in our polls, if you want to be part of the conversation of what we cover, hit us up at wisecrackplus.com. Consider joining. It would mean a lot to us. And... I know I'm asking a lot. If you guys have three minutes, please give us a review on iTunes. It can change the game for us. Feels good. And it feels good to do. I highly recommend it. And check out Ryan's short on uh, WQ. It's his HQ parody. I've seen it like 10 times. It's fucking hilarious. All right, guys. <laughs> that's it for us today. Uh, next week, we're doing Network. So, hell yeah. Fuck yeah. All right. So, that's it for today. See you guys later. Peace. Here's Wisecrack! From Hollywood, California! <laughs> Peace, dudes. Later.